we have a new sermon series that's entitled Messy Church. The reason for that is, is because it's honest and authentic. And in the midst of this sermon series, which I'm exceptionally excited about, we are going to be talking about things that most of us would rather not talk about, but we need to. And because of that, um, I'm excited. I'm excited for my own life, and I'm excited very specifically for us as a church family because we're going to be reading through the book of 1 Corinthians. This entire sermon series will be taken from 1 Corinthians. I encourage you to please be reading this book. Please be reading it. And as you do, just simply know this. This is important to know. That this book is actually a letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in response to a letter they've sent him. And then he sends another letter later that's called 2 Corinthians. And that is technically the fourth communication via letter between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. But again, I'm excited about this series because Corinth has a lot of similarities to the city of Charlottesville, and we're going to get there near the end of this morning's sermon. Unapologetically want to say this, that this morning's sermon is the background to this letter. We need to know it. And the more we understand about the author and who he's writing to, the more impact, the fullness of what Paul writes will come alive in our hearts. And so, as we move towards the reading that we're going to begin with in 1 Corinthians, just simply know this, that Paul is writing to a church embedded in a city where the city is self-absorbed, self wealth, prosperity, success, and pleasure are the center of that city. Again, we're going to learn more about that near the end of this message. But let's go ahead and jump in. Let's begin reading at the beginning of the book. We're only going to, at the outset of the sermon, read the first paragraph. And here's what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's you, and that's me, if we are a follower of Jesus. It's not just to Corinth. Paul is keenly aware that the letter he is writing is for anyone, anywhere, at any time who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read that text, it begins here. Paul. That's where we're going to start. Who is Paul? We're barely going to get past the first word. And the reason why is we need to know who he is and who's writing the letter. 
We also need to know about Paul because he's the most prolific writer and gives the most letters to the canon of Scripture that we call the New Testament. We need to know who he is. Well, notice this, that in the first verse that we read, it says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, if you read that on the surface, you'll go, that's cool. Way to go, Paul. You're an apostle. I wouldn't want to be one, but you are. Attaboy. Way to go. Here's what I know. By the end of this sermon series on 1 Corinthians, some of you are going to be called into ministry. I know that. God's put that in my heart. And in the midst of that, you might wrestle with it, you might struggle with it, but the call of God is going to begin to prompt you towards ministry. Now, the reason why I say that is for Paul to pen that phrase is absolutely mind-blowing. If you know who Paul is and where he begins a letter by saying, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle, it's shocking. As a matter of fact, if you were to read the Newer Testament, you would think anyone but Paul. Anyone. Here's why. Let's meet him. Let's discover who Paul is. We pick up Paul in Acts chapter 7, and when we do, we discover that Paul comes off of stage left into Scripture, and he is overseeing the execution of one of Jesus' disciples called Stephen. He is actually overseeing his stoning to death. I can't even let my mind go to what stoning to death must have looked like. But here's Saul. He's a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He's part of the leadership group of all of the Jewish faith. And he hears Stephen preach a sermon about Jesus. And by the time Stephen is done, they haul him out, pin him against a wall, and stone him to death. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 begins by this, by saying, Saul approved of their killing. Now we're going to get to the whole Saul-Paul thing just for a moment, but whenever you hear Paul, think Saul. Whenever you hear Saul, think Paul until we get to that point. But here he is approving of the killing. And then if you were to read on in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, you would discover that it says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men, and the next sentence, or the next two words is stunning, and women. He was arresting both and putting them in prison if they declared that they followed Jesus. You see, the cool thing about Paul's life is we get to read his letters, but we get to track his background, his biography in the book of Acts. When Paul steps in, he is overseeing the execution of a Christian. In Acts chapter 9, he steps back into the text again. And the scripture tells us this, that meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for a letter to the synagogues in Damascus. In other words, Paul has been going door to door in Israel 
arresting Christians, torturing them and killing them, both men and women. But now he's asking for permission to go to synagogues outside of Israel. Damascus is in Syria. It's not even Jewish territory. Paul is driven to exterminate the Christian faith. So he goes to the high priest, he gets this letter, and it says, after he gets that, he gets this letter, he goes to Damascus, and he gets the letter because if he finds any followers of the way, that's what Christians were initially called, were followers of the way, whether men or women, he might take them prisoner and bring them back to Jerusalem. And here's his experience with Jesus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, sudden a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If I'm Saul, I would have said, I'm just killing Christians. And Jesus said, oh no, you're persecuting me. It's fascinating. Jesus views his people as himself. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5 of Acts 9, Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go, to the, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. I mean, picture this. Saul, this man who's leading an entourage to kill and arrest Christians, as soon as he's struck by Jesus and the light comes around him, he curls up on the ground and he closes his eyes. When he goes to open them, he can see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. He's being humbled. It says, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He had what Italians would call agita. He was nervous. Emotionally, he's gripped by this experience. Now we pick up our reading in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 20. I want you to read it along with me. It says, in Damascus, now remember they're in Syria. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus called Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I love Ananias' answer, Lord. Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this dude and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And you know what, Jesus? I don't want to be next. He's fully aware that Saul has been executing Christians. He also knows that in verse 14 that Saul has come here with authority from chief, the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. That's shocking. As a Jew, Saul hated Gentiles. But here it is, the Lord says, 
He is my instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And here's what's fascinating, verse 16, it says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Reading on, it says, then Ananias went to the house and entered in, placed his hands on Saul, and he said, brother Saul, isn't that stunning? Ananias believed what Jesus had told him, that Saul was now his brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food... He regained his strength. That is the story of the Apostle Paul coming to Jesus. That's the story of Saul coming to know who Jesus is. It's stunning. It's messy. It's not what anyone would have ever planned on, ever. What's even more fascinating is that here we discover that there's this pastoral calling on Saul's life. He's going to go to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and he will preach the gospel to them. And Jesus wants him to know how much he's going to suffer. What's also stunning is Paul's view of himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, here's what he writes to his young pastor that he's mentoring by the name of Timothy. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. In many of Paul's letters, he would admit over and over again that he had killed Christians and now he is one of them. Now here's where I have a point for us to spiritually digest. And it's this. Saul received forgiveness for the execution of Jesus' followers. And if he can receive forgiveness for that, Jesus' forgiveness is greater than anything you have ever done. He can forgive you. Can you imagine Saul's experience of having been forgiven for what he had done? And he lives his life in forgiveness. And it was through the understanding of that forgiveness that Saul steps into ministry and he becomes an apostle, a pastor, an evangelist, and a teacher. What about you? Have you experienced the forgiveness of Jesus? The kind that transforms how you see yourself, where now you're transformed and you find that you actually can see yourself being used by God, not forgetting what you've done, but knowing that you're truly forgiven by Christ. Now, most of us realize that Saul at some point becomes Paul. Oftentimes people think that the reason why that name changes is because of his experience on the road to Damascus. It's not true. Some people think that Peter must have renamed Saul to Paul. Now the amazing thing is Jesus does do this for Simon, 
who becomes Peter. By the way, Peter is the second best name in the entire Bible, just so you know, just barely under the name of Jesus. <laughs> you see, the name Peter means rock. Can't you tell? <laughs> My middle name is Donald, which means ruler of the world. I stuck with Peter instead of going to Donald because most of us think of Donald the duck. Exactly. So I stayed with Peter. No one thinks ruler of the world. No one. But here's what's amazing. That's not what happens with Saul. As a matter of fact, there's a quick verse in Acts 13.9 that just simply says this. Saul, who was also called Paul... And then he's called Paul for the rest of the time. Isn't that boring? Don't you wish it was something more? But I think there's an insight here that's important to understand. The name Saul literally means asked for or prayed for. But you see, it's a Hebrew name. And it was the original name of the original king of Israel. You think this guy had been born and bred to lead? Absolutely. His name was Saul. He was named after the first king. But you see, his Roman name was Paul, and it means little or small. You see, when he looked at his life, and we're going to discover this throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, that Paul has a transformed view of the kind of person that God will use. And instead of King Saul, he chooses Paul, which is his Roman name which allows him to be small. By the way, that rhymes. Saul, Paul, small. Thought I'd put that out there for all you literature majors on grounds at UVA. But here's what's stunning about Paul. He's a savvy person. And I love it when I come across the fact that he utilized his Roman name. I'm sure he used it to meet, meet Gentiles and to win Gentiles to Jesus because if they heard the name Saul, they would have known he is Jewish. Now he turns towards Paul, which is a Roman name. And what's stunning is he would use it when it was advantageous to him. Listen to this account in Acts 22. Paul was brilliant. In Acts 22, after he had preached... He'd been arrested, and the Romans were getting ready to beat him. And in Acts 22, verse 25, it tells us this. It says, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he ran to the commander and reported it. What are we going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? By the way, if you lied about that, you'd be killed. Yes, I am, Paul answered. And then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. I was born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed, and when he realized he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains, he backpedaled like crazy. You see, Paul was a savvy man, but when it came to using the name Paul, he used it advantageously. 
when it allowed him to continue to share the gospel. But what's pretty amazing is that we know Paul as the Apostle Paul. Not preacher Paul, not pastor Paul, but the Apostle Paul. Why? Because you see at the beginning of his letter, he announces Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is an apostle? The word apostle described a person who had authority in the ancient world to act in the way of an ambassador to represent a government or one government to another. The classical and secular meaning of the word apostolos meant an envoy sent to do business on the behalf of someone who sent him. A governmental apostle served as a personal representative, emissary, messenger, agent, diplomat, or ambassador. The person officially possessed the clout and influence to speak and act on behalf of the person or entity who had sent them. So when the ambassador and apostolos spoke, his words were counted as the very words of his sender, and when an apostolos acted, his actions were interpreted as those of the sender. You see, Paul is an apostle of Jesus, and because of that, when he speaks, he speaks for Christ, and when he acts, he acts on behalf of Christ. But what's amazing is, By the closing of the Newer Testament, there are more than 83 people who are called apostle in the Newer Testament. The calling of an apostle had continued past the original 12. And what's really cool is in Romans 16, 7, there's an apostle by the name of Junia. And most biblical scholars believe she's a woman. It's incredible. Now, how did Paul become an apostle? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 4 through 10, Paul talks about this. He says that Jesus was buried and Jesus was raised on the third day according to this scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. He met to over, with over 500 people in his resurrected body. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And the last of these, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. It's fascinating. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Saul. He appears to Paul, and Paul realizes that that's an abnormal way to be born to be an apostle. And he goes on to say, for I am the least of the apostles. Not even des- I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God, because I killed Christians. But By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, Saul, who becomes Paul, admits that his apostolic calling was abnormal because all the other apostles had seen Jesus resurrected before his ascension to heaven that they had visibly seen Jesus in resurrected body. Saul or Paul had not done that. Jesus appeared to him later. But here's what's stunning. 
is that the Apostle Paul defends his apostolic calling frequently. I want you to listen to what Paul says about affirming his apostolic calling in the book of 2 Corinthians or the second letter to the church of Corinth. And the reason why he's doing this is false teachers have stepped into the church within three years of his planting the church in Corinth. False teachers have come in, they're preaching another gospel, and they're saying that Paul really is not an apostle, that they need to listen to them instead of Paul and the false gospel that they're peddling. And here's how Paul defends himself, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-one through 30. He writes, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more, frequently been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 39 times he was whipped with the cat of nine tails. And what you need to know is this list only comes after the second missionary journey. He's got another one to come. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. He, he travels more than 10,000 miles before he is executed in Rome. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in this country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I have gone often without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. And the next one freaks me out. I've been cold. I've been hypothermic twice. Oh, dear Jesus, I'll serve you, but don't let me ever be hypothermic again. Paul writes, he's been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I want you to notice what Paul does. When he talks about his commitment to Jesus, and you got to hear this, he lists his sufferings, not his blessings. Here's why. The false gospel that was coming into Corinth is the same false gospel that's being taught around our country. And it's this, that if you follow Jesus, he will give you the American dream. Thank you. <laughs> what I want to say is this, is that here's Jesus, and the Bible teaches us that Jesus showed his love for us, and Paul writes this over and over, that God so loved us that while we were yet sinners, 
Jesus blessed us with material blessings. He gives you the American dream. All you have to do is sign up. You're going to get every dream you've ever had. That's not what it says. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ was tortured and died for us. Whenever the New Testament writers speak of God's love for you, they speak clearly about the sufferings of Jesus. And a gospel that I hear too frequently is a gospel that betrays that. Jesus didn't come to make you healthy and wealthy and give you the American dream. Jesus called you to a higher calling than that. Much higher. And the proof of God's love for us is that Jesus suffered and died to free us up from our sin. That's the gospel. And so Paul in response lists his sufferings. I had a broken-hearted conversation with someone some time back where they clearly explained to me that they were going to become so materially blessed and that they were going to have the American dream at such a level that people would come to Jesus just by looking at everything they'd been blessed with. The Newer Testament never says that. The Newer Testament says it's by how we suffer because of the peace of God that brings us through suffering, that who Jesus is will be made known. Remember this. Now, here's the caveat, though. Do we pray for God's blessing? Absolutely. Do you pray over your next exam? Absolutely. Do you pray that God will bless the labor of your hands? Absolutely. Do you press into Jesus and ask him to give you strength to achieve the dreams and the goals that you have of your life? Absolutely. But be very, very careful that if those dreams do not materialize, it does not mean that Jesus is not with you. It does not. Because you see in Corinth, there was the Corinthian dream. Let's go there now. The Bible tells us the Apostle Paul says, Paul, an apostle to the church of God in Corinth. Let's talk about Corinth. You see, Paul had been there on his second missionary journey. He was there for 18 months from A.D. 51 to about 52 and a half. While he was there, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. He pioneered the church. Historians tell us that the city of Corinth would be like New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas combined. By the way, throw in a little bit of the Wild West too. You see, Corinth in Greece was on a four-mile-wide strip of land where everything that's heading to Rome comes through that port city. That port city had been destroyed by the Romans but was rebuilt by Caesar in 44 BC and he populated it with what was called freedmen. Not aristocrats, but freedmen. Not slaves, but freedmen. And he gave them an opportunity to become something and the reason why he did that and rebuilt that demolished city that way was because there were three ports in Corinth and every single ship that was bringing goods to head north to Rome would pull into one of their seaports, 
would offload everything from their ship. There was a four-mile road that went right up Main Street of Corinth, and that four-mile road would drop off on the other side, and all the goods would be reloaded on ships and would head towards Rome. It was a place where people were getting rich quick. But it's also a place that was filled with idols and gods. Strabo in the second century BC writes about the city of Corinth and the temple to Aphrodite. Here's what he wrote. The temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it employed more than a thousand prostitutes who were both men and women and they had given their lives to the goddess. Many people visited the town on account of them, and thus the prostitutes contributed to the riches of the town. It was said that ship captains would come in and frivolously spend all of their money in these temple prostitute brothels. There's a saying that said this, the voyage to Corinth is not for every man. You see, if you were to look up Corinthian in Webster's Dictionary, here's what you would find. Corinthian means this, luxurious, licentious. That's the adjective. The noun form of Corinthian means this, a native or an inhabitant of Corinth, or a man about town, especially one who lives luxuriously or dissolutely. I had no clue at all what dissolutely meant, so I looked it up, and here's what it means. Dissolutely, hear it carefully, indifferent to moral restraints, given to immoral or improper conduct, licentious, lustful living. Corinth was known for this, yet Paul had planted a church there. And here's how the letter begins. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, where? In Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to begin dealing with next week is what does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be called to be holy? Because I can tell you this, that anyone, anyone who knew that there was a church in Corinth would never believe it until they saw it. Recently, a friend of mine here in Charlottesville has been moving towards faith in Jesus and then gave his heart to Christ. A friend of his bumped into me and we began talking and he questioned me about our mutual friend. And he said, Pete, I heard that so-and-so has been coming to some of the faith things that you're involved with. I said, yes. He said, I don't believe it. That dude? For real? I said, you need to come and see. And he did. And now he really can't believe it. Because this guy, no way. But now he is. To have a church in Corinth is just like that. 
it says something about the Apostle Paul, but it says something about the gospel too, that it can transform hearts and transform lives. Paul writes a letter to Corinth. That's the background. 